This show is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, but no two people sleep alike. That's why Helix offers several different mattress models, each designed for specific sleep positions and preferences. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and take their sleep quiz to find the mattress made for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, a stomach sleeper, a hot sleeper, or a cold sleeper, Helix has just the mattress for you. I took the Helix sleep quiz and was matched with a Helix midnight mattress because I wanted a medium firmness and I sleep on my side. I am sleeping so much better on my new mattress. Don't want to take my word for it? Well, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Take the quiz and order the perfect mattress right to your door, shipped for free. It's so quick and fun to unbox, and you won't believe how well you'll sleep. All Helix mattresses come with a 100-night trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty. Helix even offers financing options and flexible payment plans. A great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and a free bedroom bundle for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com dailywire and use code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. That's helixsleep.com slash dailywire, code HELIXPARTNER20. Many on the left are having a hard time getting over the end of the Obama administration. They miss the good old days of having a classy, elegant, well-spoken president destroy every American value and institution while allowing the world to go up in flames. In token of their sadness at Obama's parting, the Harvard Review has gathered together 200 poets to write a renga for Barack Obama. Arenga is a form of poetic tribute which features two stanzas. The first stanza is a haiku, which of course is an ancient form of short but extremely annoying poetry in the tradition of the people who brought you Pearl Harbor. The haiku is followed by a wacky, which is a couplet named after the editors of the Harvard Review. The review's introduction to this poetry collection in tribute to Obama reads, quote, and yes, this is a real quote, we are embarking on a literary project of historic proportions, one that expresses the profound sense of gratitude we have for a modern political leader who is measured, thoughtful, humane, and literary-minded, unquote. Here are a few samples of the poetry, and I swear I am not making these up. <laughs> what big ears you have, Mr. President, and heart big as big can be, big as this pyramid and sphinx in the drifting sands of time. Here's another one. Old school, so cool, you. Solitary writer dreams, midnight floating world. Sing Al Green to me, baby. Sing, Barack, sir, as you please. Once you start them, it's kind of hard to stop, isn't it? Your weather said cool. Cigarettes, oratory, who dubbed them mom jeans? The moon doesn't care, I know. Your light glows from the inside. Okay, I guess it was hard to get any poets with, you know, talent to participate in an exercise like this. So I thought, as a public service, the Andrew Claven Show would contribute our own ringas of haiku wacky or wacky haiku or just wacky wacky, as the poetical case may be. Here's one we made up, for instance. IRS scandal... Not a smidge of corruption. Ha, 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 ha. Snow falls on an empty space where journalism once was. 
brings a tear to the eye, doesn't it? Here's another Claven Ringa. Country unemployed, but I have tenure, Barack. I don't give a rat's. You were so cool, it's too bad about the incompetence. And finally, <laughs> never say Islam makes problem invisible. Holy crap, we're all dead. It's not in the New York Times, so it never existed. According to the Harvard Review, a new poem will be added to the Renga every day for the first hundred days until there is not a single person left outside of academia who is not laughing hysterically. I'll close with one more poem. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. Life is tickety-boo Birds are winging, also singing Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy The world is zippity-zing It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray It makes me want to sing Oh, hooray, hooray Oh, hooray, hooray all right, you can't make this stuff up, I swear. It's our 300th show. This is our 300th show. We never thought, hey! <laughs> now, if you're looking at that picture as me, as that is actually what I look like with my shirt off, and the reason is because of Beachbody On Demand. <laughs> if, you, if you want to keep in shape, and you know, actually, this is serious. I work out more than the next three guys in the, at this office put together, and they are like half my age. That's <laughs> so true. And maybe that's part of the reason why. But it is so, so important to stay in shape. And we're all doing, you know, we're all busy. We're all traveling around. So Beachbody On Demand is this new service. They've just, they've, it's just come out and it's already got like a million followers. It's a total solution for health, fitness, and weight loss. What you get, if you're a member, you get convenient access to over $6,000 worth of the most effective fitness and nutrition programs ever created from world class super trainers. These are famous brands like P90X. That's I've been trying that. That P90X. Have you ever done this? You're doing P90X? No, I, yeah. <laughs> if you do P90X, they will, when they bury you the next day, they will say, boy, that corpse is in great, great shape. I mean, this is tough stuff. Insanity, 21 day fix extreme, T25, three week. They have a three week yoga retreat. These are all videos that they will send you. And these are proven to deliver amazing results. It's the largest community of its kind dedicating to helping people truly achieve their goals and it not only gives you exercises and things like that it also gives you you know diet uh, advice and uh um, you know, way to eat more healthy and really get yourself back in shape because otherwise it's so easy. We're all sitting down all the time. We're stuck at our computers. We're traveling around. You got to do something. This is a brand new service. It already has a million members. And here's what you can do. If you are a listener, you get a free 30-day membership. I can't believe we give this stuff away for free. Free 30-day membership. Here's what you got to do. You dial 303030 and text them, Andrew. Okay, A-N-D-R-E-W, 303030, and text Andrew, and you will get a full 30 days of access to this entire platform for free. It's an amazing, amazing service. Get back in shape. Beachbody on demand. All right, we have uh, Michael Durant. <laughs> I just love that. I can't. <laughs> These people are out of their minds. We have Michael Duran. We're going to bring him on. We're going to stay on Facebook and YouTube, but that's no excuse not to come on uh, thedailywire.com and subscribe for a lousy eight bucks a month. Uh, but we have Michael Duran, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. He is a, an 
expert in foreign affairs, mostly the Middle East, uh, primarily the Middle East, uh, was on the National Security Council during the last Bush administration. We're going to talk to him about Trump's foreign policy, which is this weird experience of he keeps doing the right thing and everybody keeps saying, well, yeah, he did the right thing this time, but it's all going to go south soon. So we're going to ask Michael about that and why people are taking that uh, at issue. He is the author of Ike's Gamble, America's Rise to Dominance in the Middle East. Really interesting subject. But first, first, we started out this week. I have to read, I, I, I almost never do this, but I've got to read a column by David Brooks, okay? David Brooks David Brooks is like the king of knucklehead row, which is what I call the op-ed page of the New York Times, which you may remember used to be a newspaper. And he wrote a column today. We started out talking about, I just got back from England. I was talking to, to my friends and I was talking about how they have this reaction to Donald Trump, which is not based on policy. They're British. Why should they care what his policies are? But but the, it's a reaction to class, the fact that he is not like Obama was, a classy guy. Obama was a classy guy. He was a total incompetent. He was a leftist. He was an ideologue. He was corrupt, but classy. He really was. You know? So David Brooks writes this column today in the New York Times, a former newspaper called The Crisis of Western Civ. And he talks about how we used to have a narrative of what Western civilization was. Here, he, let me read it to you. The Western Civ narrative came with certain values about the importance of reasoned discourse, the importance of property rights, the need for a public square that was religiously informed but not theocratically dominated. It set a standard for what great statesmanship looked like. It gave diverse people a sense of shared mission and a common vocabulary, set a framework within which political argument could happen, and most important, provided a set of common goals. So far, I agree. This is all true. Starting decades ago, many people, especially in the universities, lost faith in the Western civilization narrative. They stopped teaching it, and the great cultural transmission belt broke. Now many students, if they encounter it, are taught that Western civilization is a history of oppression. Also true. It's amazing what far-reaching effects this has had. It is as if a prevailing wind which powered all the ships at sea had suddenly ceased to blow. Now, here is where we start to get a little bit dicey. It suddenly ceased to blow. This has been going on since 1968, right? So, I'm, you know, my, my math isn't great, but that's like 50 years, okay? But it suddenly ceased to blow. And now various scattered enemies of those Western values have emerged, and there is apparently nobody to defend them. The first consequence has been the rise of the illiberals of the liberals, authoritarian, authoritarians who not only don't believe in the democratic values of the Western civilization narrative, but don't even pretend to believe in them as former dictators did. Over the past few years, especially, we have entered the age of strongmen. We are leaving the age of Obama, Cameron, and Merkel, and entering the age of Putin, Erdogan, El Sisi, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong Un. Guess what the next name is? Just guess. And Donald Trump. And Donald Trump. So the age of Obama, the age of Obama, right? This is a year ago. The age of Obama, Cameron and Merkel, who didn't believe in Western civilization at all. I mean, that's not true of Cameron. But Obama was an anti-Western. I mean, think about the logic here. He abused our institutions, the IRS, the Justice Department. He apologized to our enemies for America. He went out to the Middle East and apologized for America to those people, those people who have kept their, their citizens, if you can call them citizens, enslaved and in ignorance and in poverty year after year after year. And he apologized to America. He bowed to guys who fat, you know, 
sheiks who like sit on the heads and lives of their people who treat women like second class citizens and he bowed to them but he was the age of western civilization and now it's all gone wrong and the thing is just like with some of my friends this is about class remember david brooks is the guy who looked at barack obama and admired the crease in his pants right he admired the crease in his pants and he said i looked at the crease in his pants and i knew he was going to be president and he was going to be a good president i mean i thought like maybe his tailor should have been president if the crease in his pants was so so great maybe the guy who pressed his pants should have been elected but listen you know let's let's just go back i want you i want to play two cuts of brooks on pbs this is during the election when he says uh, everything is going bad because people aren't even listening to the debate. They're just voting essentially their class. Listen to what he says. At the end of the day, people are going to come home to who they were. And what's depressed me, frankly, most about this race is we went into this country, a divided nation, and now the chasms are just solidified. So divided along race, divided along gender, urban, rural, college educated, non-college educated, we can go down the list. Uh, and basically less educated or high school educated whites are going to Trump, it doesn't matter what the guy does. And college educated going to Clinton. I mean, everyone's dividing based on demographic categories and sometimes you get the sense that campaign barely matters. Uh, people are just going with their gene pool or whatever it is. And that, that is one of the more depressing aspects of this race for me. The gene pool, that's the problem. It's not that you're out of work. It's not that you've been screwed by the by elites like David Brooks for 50 years. It's not that these guys have been sitting on the head. I mean, he works for the New York Times, one of the enemies of Western civilization. And that's not the problem. The problem is your gene pool. You are not classy enough. Your pants are not pressed well enough to understand what David Brooks understands. But that's because, but the thing is, these ideas, these fine Western civilization ideas, they're not for you. You know, you don't have the, you don't, you can't understand them. And they're certainly not for Muslims because Muslims can't understand them. Because here, after an attack, Ted Cruz, during this is back during the campaign, Ted Cruz recommended that we need heightened security in Muslim neighborhoods, heightened, uh, you know, investigators, more people looking into Muslim neighborhoods, watching the, the mosques and finding out what's going on. And here is Brooks's reaction to that. And listen carefully, because this is an am amazing statement that he makes for a man of his education. Uh, yeah, I, I've spent the last week so repulsed by Ted, by Donald Trump, I'd forgotten how ugly Ted Cruz could be, but he reminded <laughs> us this week. Uh, you know, it, as I said, and as everyone says, the reason we have terrorism is not because the Prophet Muhammad came down and not because there's a religion called Islam. That's right. The reason we have terror uh, is that uh, young men are alienated and feel they can wage war, an unjust war, against societies that are uh, racist and xenophobic and crushing toward them. Stop and if you so want to stop it there. So the reason we have problem is not because of Mohammed. What a Mohammed. Well, he was just standing around minding his own business. You know, it's not that they have ideas of their own. It's not that those ideas shape civilization. You're somehow you're supposed to be able to live for 30 years like a refugee is supposed to live for 30 years in a civilization that treats women like dirt and then come to the West where we tend to treat women as if they were human beings some of us, <laughs> and, and then and somehow all that stuff, all those ideas that you've been living with for 30 years, they don't matter anymore. 
If you listened carefully, he was blaming us for Islamic extremism. He was saying we have oppressed them so badly. We have oppressed them so badly that they're who are the enemies of the West here? Who are the people who undermine Western civilization for blaming us for our enemies? That is the whole thing that they teach these kids in school. That's the whole reason they don't believe in free speech, why they're rioting when Ann Coulter comes. They can't, you know, that's that's a hundred pound woman. They can't, they're so scared of a hundred pound woman and her ideas that they have to put on masks and beat people up. You know, it's not, the thing is, it's not a matter of class. It's a matter of ideas. And these, these ideas, good ideas and bad ideas, they affect everyone, including David Brooks, whose ideas are completely ridiculous in this case. And we're going to just see a little bit more of that before we bring on Michael Duran. First, I have to pause just for a moment to discuss stamps.com. Because if you're not doing stamps.com, you are probably standing in line on the post office. If you are standing in line on the post office, you're probably bored. If you're bored, your life is not worth living. So stamps.com or your life is not worth living. The thing is, with stamps.com, you get everything, every service from the U.S. Postal Service comes right to your fingertips. You get it right on your computer. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. It's really cool, by the way. You just put in the envelope. The envelope comes out with a stamp, anything you need. And stamps.com makes it easy because they'll send you a digital scale which automatically calculates exactly how much postage you need. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. You know, this is a big thing for me because I send out a lot of books. You know, when you send out books, you can send them a little cheaper than other kinds of things. You got to know that stuff. And then you just bring it right out of your computer. You don't have to go drive to the post office. You don't have to stand online. It is, it's really a terrific service, and it really saves time and saves you. Just It just saves you all the stuff, you know, keeps you from having to do all the stuff that has become so annoying. Right now, you too can enjoy the stamp service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. They'll send you the scale, and you don't have to commit to the service. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. That is my name. That's the name of that guy with the rippling muscles uh, and the sores. Stamps.com and enter Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. You will never have to go to the post office again with stamps.com. You know, I just want to say one more thing about this this whole idea of who, who are the enemies of Western civilization. Yesterday, there was another horrible attack in Paris. Guy opened fire with an AK-47. I think right now the death toll's at one. He killed one cop on the Champs-Elysees, which is, you know, this sort of uh, Broadway, Fifth Avenue. It's the Fifth Avenue of Paris. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful place. So Donald Trump came out and said this. He was giving a, a joint press conference with... Uh, the Italian prime minister, and this is what he said. Our condolences from our country to the people of France. Again, it's happening, it seems. I just saw it as I was walking in, so that's a terrible thing, and it's a very, very terrible thing that's going on in the world today, but it looks uh, like another terrorist attack, and uh, what can you say? It just never ends. We have to be strong, and we have to be vigilant, and I've been saying it for a long time. So, a little simple, honest, plain speech from our president and the media went nuts. How could he say it was a terrorist attack? He didn't know. He just saw it on TV. Why did he jump to conclusions? Why did he jump to conclusions? But let me remind you, just let me remind you of what the media has been doing 
all this time, September, this is coming out of the New York Post, September 2009, the discovery of hanged census taker Bill Sparkman in rural Kentucky fueled media speculation that he'd been killed by anti-government Tea Partiers. February 2010, Joe Stack flew his small plane into an IRS building in Austin, Texas. The media immediately suggested that the anti-tax rhetoric of the Tea Party led to the attack. That same month, the professor of the, at the University of Alabama, Amy Bishop, shot and killed three colleagues at a faculty meeting. The gun-loving Tea Party came under immediate suspicion, but Bishop was a lifelong Democrat and Obama d- donor. March 2010, John Patrick Bedell shot two Pentagon security officers at close range. The media went wild with speculation that a right-wing extremist had reached the end of his rope. May 2010, Bedell, by the way, turned out to be a registered Democrat and a 9-11 truther. May 2010, New York authorities disarmed a massive car bomb. You remember this? And Mayor Bloomberg immediately speculated that the bomber was someone upset about the president's new health care law. August 2010, 2010, Admits the debate over the Ground Zero mosque, Michael Enright stabbed a Muslim cab driver in the neck, immediately dubbed an anti-Muslim stabbing. With You know, we've, we've just seen this again and again. I can't remember the name of the, uh, the gay guy um, who was crucified on the fence. Remember, they've written a play about it. Do you guys remember who that was? I can't remember. They've, it's just become this kind of gay talking point. But it was turned out to be some kind of drug deal gone wrong. They just completely, what is it? Yeah, that's it. Matthew Shepard. Thank you. Uh, you know, they, they have been selling this narrative. It's all one sided. And so David Brooks sees that Western civilization has been undermined. He ought to take a look in the mirror and see who does this, who does it and who jumps on our president every time he opens his mouth for anything about anything. Which brings me to my guest today, who is Michael Duran, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., specializes in Middle East security issues. He was in the administration of George W. Bush. He served uh, as, at, in the White House as a senior director in the National Security Council. He is the author of Ike's Gamble, America's Rise to Dominance in the Middle East. And this is a fascinating subject. It's the Suez Crisis of 1956 and how it convinced Eisenhower that Israel, not Egypt, was the strongest American ally. So it really set the tone of our foreign policy until Obama, when basically Israel was uh, stabbed in the back repeatedly. Ike's Gamble, America's Rise to Dominance in the Middle East by Michael Duran. Do we have Michael? Hey, there you are. And look, I I love that backdrop. Did you paint that on or is that real? It's actually real. (laughs) uh, That's a federal triangle. What you can't see right over there is the old post office. It's uh, Donald Trump's building. There it is. Right across the street from Trump. He did a great job on that building. It was just sitting there empty for years, right? He did. Yeah, he did. And relevant to what we're going to be talking about, uh, when he won, me and my friends who had supported him, we had to kind of secretly go over to have drinks in uh, in, in Trump Tower. Excited <laughs> <laughs> about their work, you know. So I was watching from England, where I was vacationing. I was watching, you know, Trump the bombing in Syria, and I was watching the bombing in Afghanistan. And every piece was well, yes, those that was the right thing to do, but. But Trump has no philosophy, but Trump has no idea what he's doing, but Trump is going to lead us all to nuclear war. I, I offered to give a Pulitzer, a free Andrew Clavin Pulitzer Prize to the first guy who wrote a, an article that said Trump did the right thing, full stop. You know, just the end of this. First, let me ask you this. As a foreign policy expert, do you begin to discern a Trump doctrine or do you think he's flying by the seat of his pants? Uh, I think it's something in between. I, I don't think we yet have a Trump. The way The way I see it is that there's a, a kind of a, and this isn't unique to me, they, there's a, there are two clear tendencies in, in the, the administration. One of them is the America first nationalism, 
let's do less tendency. And the other one is uh, the sort of traditional Republican foreign policy, I, I, I would say. And, and, and they're trying to sort that out. But, uh, but what, what they're finding out very quickly is that some of the more hopeful aspects of the America first foreign policy, like we're going to be able to work well with Putin, we're, we don't have to get involved in Syria and all this, that it just doesn't actually work when you start to look at what's happening. And so the voices who say, you know what, we're in a competition with the Iranians, we're in a competition with the Russians, uh, we have to reassert our, our, our deterrent capability and all this, they're, they're, they're kind of winning the argument. I, I don't know that they'll ever completely win, but, uh, but, the, but they're defining the tone because the, 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 uh, the ideological America first answer to the problems of the Middle East just doesn't work when you, when you come into contact with reality. Right. That, I mean, that is the difference between ideology and reality, a difference that Obama never learned. But, but Trump, I mean, my observation of the guy and people keep saying he's stupid, he's ignorant, he's all these things. My, he does seem to learn. He does seem to get it. And, and there, there's no question that he's making these decisions, right? No, no question. And I, I, I mean, look, the thing that was most amazing to me about 70 years old, a guy who's set in his ways, he this isn't foreign policy, but just his ability to think and, and innovate was was the was the win of the election. And he he had a completely unique understanding of the American electorate and how to get elected. Everyone told him he couldn't do it. And he did it. Like, let's just let's start. Let's start with that. You know, in your David Brooks segment, you you said, uh, you know, he had his little history of what was wonderful about America, about uh, Western civilization. I noticed that what was missing from that was uh, was the sovereignty of a democratic people. You know, the voice of the people, which is what he doesn't like. He likes democracy in the abstract, but he doesn't like the demos. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well. So I expect this from the New York Times. I expect the, you know, they had a hilarious article that said, uh, yes, he's doing the, all, the, the right thing, but, but there are risks, as if there was such a thing as a foreign policy without risks. But what about the right? The right is cutting him no slack. The idea that he might be making good decisions because he's making good decisions full stop just doesn't exist on the right. I mean, it, or at least on a certain segment of the never Trump right. Yeah, the, the intellectual right. Um, I'm afraid that the intellectual right uh, is is they're invested in his failure uh, psychologically? I mean, if you talk to people, uh, they'll say, "Yeah, maybe it can get better." Uh, I'm trying to be hopeful, uh, you know. It, but it's always qualified. It's so, yeah, he did the right thing in Syria, but you know, he did it for the wrong reason. My favorite one like that was when they said the attack that he carried out against the Syrians was smaller than the one that that Barack Obama didn't carry out. As if that means... <laughs> I, did, I missed that one. That's a great argument. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Obama didn't do it, and Trump did, and that's all the... That's, and he did it quickly, you know, within... He didn't, he didn't deliberate for six months and then not do it. He, he did it very quickly, and that, that makes all the difference. But... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to say also, I mean, one of the things that... The bizarre things that happened when I was away was the Russian collusion narrative all but disappeared. But so did the Obama spied narrative. I mean, nobody's talking about either of those things. Yeah, the 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 the, uh, the the collusion narrative hasn't disappeared. It's still it's still there. People are hanging on to it. They they're still they're still believing that Comey is going to come up with some uh, some prosecution that's going to blow it all. Why? It's, it's crazy what they think. And the the thing is that they if you go back to uh, like say last August the Never Trump letter that was in the New York Times, you know they they predicted these are the Republican intellectuals, and, and not just intellectuals, I mean, very serious people who held very high-level jobs in government. They said that Trump is going to be a uniquely 
reckless president if he's going to become president. But the other thing, when you were talking to these people here in Washington, and they're, they're my friends, actually, so I have to be careful, be a little, a little bit delicate in what I say. Uh, at the time, they never believed that he would actually become president. Whoops, my light just went out here. Oh, well, you'll have to look at me in the in the shade. We, we can still see it. So we like, understand it's Washington. Nothing works, right? <laughs> Uh, so they, they never actually believed that he was going to that he was going to win. Mm -hmm. So this allowed them, I think. Now, this is I, I, you have to engage in a little psycholo psychologizing here. It allowed them to play with house money psychologically. They, there was never going to be a situation where they were going to be denied a job or hurt in some way for having this 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 uh, very extremist or, you know, uh, idealist, idealistic position. Uh, that namely that he is uniquely uh, uniquely dangerous to the republic which is what they said mm -hmm. and and taking that position also put them it, it was very they indulged themselves morally if he's uniquely dangerous i mean they're taking a real principled position they're not there's there's no calculation here this is we're just trying to save the republic so once you've said that he's going to lose and not just lose it's going to be a disaster for the republican party and and he's uniquely reckless. And then what happens? He wins. He takes he, he brings a he delivers a, a, a historic victory to the Republican Party. Uh, and, and so you have to decide, well, am I going to say, OK, I'm going to live with him or, or and that I got it all wrong, including my moral evaluation of him? Mm. Or am I going to continue with a moral evaluation? And and that saves their 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 view of themselves, if you see what I mean. So, it is, so the first minute they say Trump is doing a good job, they lessen themselves in their own estimation. You're saying that, right? Yeah. Can, so they can, so they, so psycho, some of them are trying, others are not. And the, but the, the the thing about the collusion, they also of course hate his Russia the the, the Russia policy that he expressed during the the campaign. Uh, so they want the collusion to be true. And they don't want to look too closely at the Obama surveillance as aspect of it, because that will also diminish that, you know, it's either one or the other. It was either either Obama was surveilling him and pre presenting him as Putin's puppet or he actually was Putin's puppet. And so psychologically, they're invested in the Putin Putin's puppet narrative. And, and they're not where you are. And this is the, the I, I know very few of these guys that are anywhere close to where you are. I mean, where you said, OK, I didn't want him. He wasn't my choice, but I'm going to evaluate him. And you know what? So far, he looks pretty conservative to me. So that's OK. You, th this is not what we're hearing. And it's not what a lot of the it's not what a lot of the conservative publications are, are saying either. They're, what they're doing now is, the, and I won't name them, but you know them well, yeah. they're, they're calling balls and strikes, you know? Exactly, also, exactly, yeah. We're, we're just neutral observers over here. And, and the problem with that is ultimately the midterm elections come along and the next presidential com, uh, election comes along and the alternative is going to be far worse than what we've got and you haven't supported him. I mean, it seems to me that if he's walking in the general right direction, uh, you know, we can pat him on the back and uh, occasionally he's going to do something we don't like. You know, that's that's fine with me. And, and I'll tell you what, if he makes a big mistake, they're going to be all over him. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. that's vindication. We told you so. Here it is. The disaster. So we're talking to Michael Duran from the Hudson Institute, the author of Ike's Gamble, America's Rise to Dominance in the Middle East, which is a really fascinating subject, the Suez Crisis of 56 and how it turned Eisenhower toward Israel. But let me, let me get a, a general idea from you as a foreign policy expert. You're looking at what's going on. Are you, are you happy with what's going on, basically, the, the way he's handled Syria, the way he's handling uh, the North Koreans? Are you sitting there thinking, uh, yes, but, or are you thinking, no, this is pretty much the way we should go? 
No, I'm happy. I'm happy. I mean, I, look, I, I, I resigned myself a long time ago to the, the fact that uh, I'm not going to get the world that I want exactly as I as I want it. And so I, I, given the realistic alternatives, I'm, ex, I'm I'm very, very happy. And I think the I think the trend is all in the right direction. That's uh, you know, I, I want to say one more thing about these guys, if I may, the, yeah. the, the spot into my head. They're unlike uh, uh, unlike the Democrats. Right. Who, you know, you know, like CNN has gone all all in on, on Trump is evil. And right. so have a lot of the other networks and, and their ratings are they're benefiting from it. Right. Uh, but he the, the Trump is not an existential threat to the left in the way that he is to the never Trump Republicans. Huh. Right. You think he's I, more of a threat to them than to, to the yes, Democrats to, to, and to their careers. And they look on two levels. One, Trump, kind of what you were talking about before, about the David Brooks, the style thing. Trump sent a very clear signal, which is disturbing to people like me who, you know, scribble for a living. I can't make money like Michael J. Knowles with no words. <laughs> None of us can. Don't don't worry about it. Yeah. So, 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 but Trump sent a clear signal that he doesn't care about us. We yeah. don't matter. And and I and I can't, I've been wondering since he did that. Like, do I matter? Do I not matter? Like, can you actually run a government, a foreign policy, and everything without us? Do we, are we just irrelevant? Uh, mm-hmm. A little pimple on the government, you know? Or and uh, and it's it's disturbing to think. So there's that aspect. But then they are invested, the, the Never Trump Republicans, in a view of American foreign policy that that Trump has pretty much rejected. Right. And so if he wins out, that 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 view is going to die. It's going to wither. And and I don't think anyone's thinking in those terms, but it weighs on them psychologically again. Really interesting. Listen, uh, Mike, I really appreciate your coming on. I hope you'll come on again. I'm going to have to let you go. But I also before I do let you go, I want to thank you for what you said uh, about my book, uh, The Great Good Thing in the Wall Street Journal. You named it as one of the books of the year. And I really appreciated that. Uh, Oh, can can you give me two sentences on that? Because I uh, (laughs) break Praise you. Give me two sentences to praise. You. <laughs> I'll never stop anyone from praising. Listen, listen I loved your book. Oh. I absolutely loved your book, and I, I just wanted to say I, I wrote a couple of lines in that little capsule review in the Wall Street Journal that that they cut out, where I, I said this is a, a kind of a manifesto for those of us who grew, who uh, came of age in the dingy afterglow of Woodstock, right? It's the, right? and you you bring a, you bring a sensibility to this issue. That well, sometime have me on. We'll talk more about it. But look, uh, let me put it to you this way: If there's one thing that evangelical Christians don't do well, right? It's irony, right? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> not, true. Not, not, they, you know, I, you you mentioned 1968 before, and I was thinking, you know, you know, I, I was once reading, I think, Wikipedia article about Mitt Romney, and I noticed that in 1968 he was on doing his missionary work for the uh, for his church abroad, and he was in some kind of terrible accident, and he was in traction for a year, and I was thinking. Mitt Romney spent the summer of love in traction. You know, he just he missed it entirely. Right. So what what you have in that book is a blend of post 1960s, 1970s irony. You bring a Jewish uh, ironic sensibility, but also this post 1960s sensibility together with with some serious thought about religion. And that mix, I had never seen it anywhere before. It spoke to me so, because I'm, I'm, I'm 55 years old, so it spoke to me directly. You know, I was, 
I, I, I still love to hear uh, Jimi Hendrix all along the Watchtower. And that's that's never going to go away. Yeah. But I think that's true for a lot of people who are devout. You know, so that, it's just it's fantastic. Now, oh, thank but, you very much. I thank you. And now I now I have to bring you back so you can. Uh, <laughs> but thank, thank you very much, Michael. That was really interesting, really an interesting take on this. Michael Duran of the Hudson Institute, the author of Ike's Gamble, America's Rise to Dominance in the Middle East about the Suez Crisis. Thanks a lot. We will talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you. Take care. Really interesting. My book is called The Great Good Thing. Since he was such an advertisement, I don't want you to miss The Great Good Thing. You know, The Great Good Thing, a secular Jew comes to faith in Christ. Uh, really interesting take about this, you know, and it did remind me, it reminded me of a novel. I think it's called House of Leaves by a guy whose name I can't pronounce. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful ghost story, but very hard to read. So I can't recommend it to everybody because it's very dense. It's very intellectual. But basically, one or two incidents happen in this book and the rest is just people talking about it. And I think that that's, that's my impression of the Donald Trump presidency. He does something and then everybody has to talk about it for a million years and discuss dis- so I, I agree with Mike about this, that a lot of this is about how much smarter than Mike, Donald Trump they are. And and maybe they're not. You know, maybe Trump is a lot smarter than we think he is. And I think I think he so far has shown himself to be a practically smart man, if nothing else. All right. Stuff I like. We always end with music. The Clavenless weekend is upon us. It seems to I guess it did come a little faster because we only did three shows this week. We will be back with four full shows, although we're skipping Tuesday and doing Friday next week, which means you should start to get your mailbag uh, questions in soon. Get them in soon so I can do it. The mailbag on Wednesday. If you are a subscriber to the dailywire.com for a lousy eight bucks a month, you can Send in your questions. I will answer them. The answers will be 100% correct and guaranteed to change your life occasionally for the better. Uh, Stuff I like, we like to end with music. And here is a song. If Maybe somebody out there can help me with this. This is a song that no one has ever heard of. This will be the first time you've ever heard it. It's by a uh, husband and wife songwriting team named Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who were just... One of these guys, one of these teams that just turned out hit after hit in the 80s and 90s on Broadway. Remember, the, you say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. Uh, you've lost that love and feeling. Uh, Blame it on the bossa nova, which was kind of a gimmick song, but it was a big hit. Brown eyed woman. A lot of songs. And this was one of their songs that didn't really take off. In the 60s, I think it may have been the early 70s. I was a huge Bill Cosby fan. And this was before the whole, you know, sex thing. But it, but. Uh, he had an opening act. It was two guys, a duet. One of them played the bass, not the bass guitar, but the bass, like boom, 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 boom. And the other guy sang, and that's all it was, bass and vocal. And they were spectacular. They may have been brothers. I think they were two black guys, and they may have been brothers. They were just spectacular. I cannot find any trace of them. And I have looked at old ads for uh, Cosby's um, you know, appearances and all this stuff. I cannot find any trace of who these people were. They put out two albums, meaning vi- vinyl albums. They were just great. And one of the songs they sang, and I saw them in concert, I saw them performing, opening for Cosby, was this song by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde named Angelica. And I, I wish I could find their cut of it. I can't. I got Barry Mann singing it. So this is to end the week. Is Angelica by Barry Mann. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll see you again on Monday. Each night I meant to say I missed her through the day But I'd forget it I never said it I'd pass the flower shop Lord knows I meant